0: Good morning, everybody. Thank you for joining us here today. Um, It's really a pleasure to be here, and it's been a very long time since I've found myself in a place of worship. Uh, You definitely picked an interesting person to (laughs) to give this talk. Um, I'll tell you a little bit about my foray with religion. Um, My father was, as you now know, um, a Muslim. Uh, His mom was Catholic. His father was Muslim. Uh, My mother is uh, an Albanian Orthodox. I spent um, most of my education in Catholic school, and I currently identify as confused. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) right, fair. Um, Anyways, it's been a very long time since I've told the story that I'm about to tell you today about how Craigslist Confessional um, started and what it is. So I feel that you should probably be forewarned that it's going to be, for me, a very close substitute to therapy, Um, and there might be a tear or two, but hopefully good tears. So as you just heard, my name is Helena, and in 2014, I founded a project called Craigslist Confessional. And what I did then, and what I do still to this day, is is pretty simple. Um, I listen to stories that people are afraid to tell anybody else in their lives. Secrets, revelations, confessions, whatever you'd like to call them, but they're things that they've kept hidden from their closest friends, and sometimes their most trusted confidants, and if you are one of the lucky few to believe in therapy, sometimes even they're therapists. Um, And I do it anonymously and for free. And you might now be wondering, what would drive somebody to do something like this? So I'll tell you. In 2014, I was working as an education lobbyist in DC. And I had my very own little office. And my parents liked to brag that you could see the White House from my office. And you could, to be fair. Um, I had the job that I had dreamed of having ever since I started having dreams, right? Um, And I graduated I beta Kappa, summa cum laude, my parents would tell anybody who was willing to listen, right? Their daughter was officially a success. Um, and I think this was a big deal because, as immigrants, my parents had very big expectations of uh, the person that they came to this country to save from communism, from Albania. Um, and in the age of kind of job snobbery i kind of understood it right because in dc you have the quintessential getting to know you question which is hey nice to see you so what do you do right and how do we answer that what do you do it's such a big part of um identity and in spite of having kind of checked everything off of my list the things that i wanted to accomplish in spite of having everything that I dreamed of at 24 only, right? I wasn't happy. And when I look back now at 34, 10 years later, <laughs> at the absolute existential angst that I was feeling, um, that I was smack dab in the middle of, I kind of want to give myself a pat in the back and tell myself, well, wait until you have kids, <laughs> which I now do. <laughs> Um, But, you know, in spite of my youth at the time, I don't want to downplay how I was feeling. It was very legitimate, and it felt uncomfortable. And every single day, I would wake up and kind of wait for the other shoe to drop, right? Wait for something to happen to me. Um, I kept thinking, okay, one day if I do something differently, I'll wake up suddenly happier or more fulfilled in my work. And something that probably a lot of us feel is this feeling of there has to be something more than this, right? Than going to work every day and coming home and watching TV and going to sleep and waking up and doing it again. Um, Yeah, I was constantly unsettled and uncomfortable in my skin and looking around for that little extra thing that was going to make me feel whole or better. And the thing that made that worse is that I didn't really feel that I had a space where I could be myself. Just fully myself. You know, like sweatpants, crying at some TV show I'm watching. It was not... That didn't exist. Um, And I didn't feel that I belonged because I think mostly at work, I felt that I was squarely in the other category. I was the only person that was an immigrant and our team of hundreds, um, and I was the only one that I you know, felt was truly shaped by the crucible that is the immigrant experience. Um, and I felt in many ways kind of branded, right? And I wanted desperately to fit in, I didn't take any pride in being different, I wanted to be just like everybody else, to be the same and look the same, like the same things, And answer the so what do you do question with some pride right but no matter how much i wanted to change myself on the outside i couldn't change my feelings and my experiences and how those shaped me and i probably had a huge chip on my shoulder which deserved it right um i sometimes kind of would think back whenever i felt unhappy and thinking about okay this is not what i want to do for the rest of my life i think back to where my family began in the States. Um, so we settled into Bridgeport, Connecticut, on uh, the south end of Bridgeport, Connecticut, which was not a very nice area. And we lived in a one-bedroom apartment. Um, my parents had the bedroom, and I slept in the futon in the living room. And there was a roach problem that I will not get into details about, but it was very unpleasant. And I kind of bullied myself with that memory of like, do you want to go back to just pull it together, keep it together, right? Um, but that was also part of the reason why I felt kind of less than, right? How could I pretend that I didn't know what it was like to want for something, to to have to share a sandwich with my mom, because we couldn't afford one for each of us, right? And to spend my weekends putting away another kid's toys, and helping my mom clean houses, and you know trying to do my best to kind of help and contribute to the family and our survival here in this new country, in this new place. But I tried, right, because you have to, you have to kind of keep your head up and keep going. And I acted like I had it all together and smiled and my boss, who clearly had no idea who I was, took to calling me Little Miss Perfect. Ugh, cringe. And the thing about pretending to be Little Miss Perfect um, is that especially when it's not who you are, (laughs) is that it starts wearing on you uh, slowly but very steadily until you feel like somebody else is living your life. And I became so good at compartmentalizing, at being who I had to be at work and then somebody else altogether in my private life. And the result was that I felt like a fraud. Uh, And I wondered, am I the only one? that's feeling like this, right? There has to be other people out there that are feeling like they're kind of role playing through life. Um, And I felt afraid and alone. And if there are other people out there who are feeling the same way, and my hunch was there were, right? Then when do we get to break out of these roles that we play and be ourselves? When are we finally truthful and Clearly it's not on social media, right? We joke about, follow me here and do this there, but is that our life? Is that who we are? Or is that just the highlight reel, who we are? Um, so the weight of that expectation can be ever present and it can be crushing. Uh, and that's what I was feeling one day, that, that kind of insurmountable weight of keep it together. Make parents proud, you've got a good life, you've got a good job. What are you so unhappy about? And I was coming back from Capitol Hill from a briefing on the hill, <clears throat> and I passed Joe, who was um, a homeless man who panhandled in front of my building. and I didn't know Joe well or or at all, really, but I would occasionally bring him box lunches from the hill. You see the way that the hill staffers get Uh, lobbyists like myself, to go to their events is they'll give you free lunch, and very good lunch. And so I'd grab a couple and pass them out to people who certainly deserved it more than I did for the job that I wasn't doing. Um, And I would kind of get him a soda from the CBS around the corner, and sometimes he recognized and seemed to know who I was, and other times he just wasn't really present, so I would put together that he probably was struggling with some sort of mental illness, um, and on that particular day I kind of walked right by him and went back to work because I had, I had a, a deliverable um, and he called after me and he was like hey are you, are you upset with me or something along those lines and I just whew, kind of crashed um, because I realized the inequality between the two of us I realized that he counted on me for food And I had the luxury of letting my responsibility to him, albeit self-imposed, slip my mind. So I turned back to him, and and I offered what I could that day, which was a little bit of time. And I went and I got us a a sandwich at Pop Belly's, which was around the corner, and we shared the sandwich, and I talked to him about his life. And I asked him things that I often wonder about people who are less fortunate, like, where do you sleep at night? And what about when it's cold? And do you have a family that you can turn to? Do you have any kids? And while we talked, I realized for the first time in a long time that I felt like strangely at ease, kind of at peace, right? Um, and I saw a lot more of myself and this man and this homeless man um, sitting on the street, eating a sandwich that we would sharing than I did in my peers upstairs that I worked with. Um, And I think that that momentary kind of camaraderie allowed me to open up to him as well. Um, And I think part of me felt like, oh, there's nothing to lose. Like, sure, I can tell him about what's going on, but you know, who's he going to tell? And it's fine. Like, this is a safe person and I can speak to him. And so I kind of vaguely opened up about my struggles a little bit. And, of course, um, it did feel very self-indulgent to complain to a homeless man about my about my life. Um, but the thing is, it didn't feel tone deaf in the moment. It was very, like, quid pro quo. And he listened patiently, and he didn't say much, and he just kind of nodded, and we ate our sandwiches in silence. And... Um, And then I I left and told him, thank you. And when I was in the privacy of my own office for the first time in a long time, I started crying. And then maybe a few days after that, when I had begun processing why this was such an emotionally fraught thing that had happened, I started thinking, well, was it because the fact that he listened to me gave me peace? Um, Just hearing me narrativize my own life was therapeutic? Uh, Was it that I realized my comparative good luck, and it was so evident in my conversation? um, Had giving voice to my secrets allowed me to kind of view them truly in context? Um, I thought probably a little bit of each of those things, but that feeling stayed with me and that emotional levity that came along with it stayed too. And I found myself, as as we often do when we find something that really works very well for us, is how do I replicate this? How do I do this again? How do I get all the pieces just right so that I could have this moment of connection over and over and over again? How do I recreate the gift of listening? And how do I provide this space not just for myself, but for others as well? So I took a risk. Uh, now Craigslist isn't as ever-present as it used to be 10 years ago. Um, but where I lived in DC, if you wanted to find an apartment, you went on Craigslist. If you wanted to find a friend in a community, you went on Craigslist. If you wanted to sell something, find a job, everybody went on Craigslist for everything. So I posted my first ad in Craigslist personals under Strictly Platonic. Uh, and Uh, the subject line said, um, what's your story, or tell me about yourself. I kind of played with two different ones. Um, And really where that came from was that really low moment of seeking validation and seeking connection and seeking to break out of my own often self-imposed loneliness, right? Um, And the response I, I received was surprising. I thought this was going to be an ad that I posted and nobody or maybe a couple of weirdos responded to. But um, no, I got tons of legitimate emails from people who wanted to take me up on my offer (laughs) and, and to tell me about their lives and their stories over a cup of coffee. And so that's where the idea was born, out of this personal and very selfish need to be seen and heard and witnessed and not treated as a stereotype or not made to be feeling guilty or made to feel judged or ostracized, not praised or coddled either, but just heard, period, impartially, to know that my story, our stories mattered to someone. And the very first person that I listened to, we agreed to meet at a Starbucks right across the street, from the building where I worked, which was on 13th and G in DC. Slaughter is still there. Um, And this was during my lunch hour. So she was running late and my lunch hour was 45 minutes. I stayed with her for an hour and a half and got in trouble. Um, And this woman, I won't use her real name, so we'll call her Sarah. Um, Sarah had been a heroin addict for decades. And she was a product of a very abusive childhood. And she started her story with this line. Now this line took my breath away. They say it always happens to the other guy and I'm the other guy. She wanted to talk about her addiction. So she told me about a rainy night that she and her husband and her two kids had spent in a Toys R Us parking lot. She said that the letters in the sign had been flickering and that her kid was running a fever And when the rain started coming down, she tried her best to get the kids under the awning. But she was in such bad shape at that point uh, that her feet were riddled with sores and blisters. And so she couldn't walk. And she told me that she tried to amble towards the awning, holding her kids' hands, and her youngest uh, had a seizure and collapsed to the ground in the rain. And in her desperation, And in the helplessness that completely consumed her in that moment, she told me that she just threw her head back and started screaming at God. And when she seemed tired and totally emotionally spent, and I felt that she said what she needed to say, I offered to walk her back to the metro station. And on our way there, we were both quiet and emotional and I felt really strange because this was my first meeting. I had no idea what to expect. And I didn't know how to express to her my gratitude for telling me her story and for being so open and not afraid and for trusting me. Um, And so I hugged her, and she got on the escalator, and I watched as kind of the ground slowly erased her. And she looked back, waved at me, and that was the last time I saw her. I went back to the office after that. And I'll be completely honest with you, I started bawling. Uh, I couldn't wrap my head around not only the fact that this was, you know, I'd done this thing that was weird in and of itself, but that out of this really weird idea had come this really exceptional conversation with a person, with a real person who had such a powerful story and whom I completely understood all of her reasons, real and imagined, as to why she might have had to not share that with anybody else. Um, and it took me a while, really, to understand, and I kept doing meetings after that um, every day, because how, how can you stop after you have that experience? Um, and I knew that this was something I had to keep doing, um, and that I was the right person to do it. Not because I have some sort of innate gift for listening or anything else, but because the idea had occurred to me, and I was doing it already, and it was a good thing, so I should keep doing it. Um, it was a, it was the way I saw it was I was fulfilling a human need, and thereby it became a responsibility, and that's what I feel. with every single story that I hear is this immense responsibility to bear witness to the lives of other people to lighten their load just by listening to make them feel heard even if it's just for that hour or two that we're together and important and then to share their lives and their stories with their permission with the invisible counterparts existing as they doubtlessly do out in the world somewhere maybe amongst you here Um, The solidarity, the common narrative that we all share in our struggles does wonders really in humanizing the vacuum that we feel outside of ourselves sometimes. It makes the world not so strange and unfriendly. It makes our fellow humans not as unapproachable and unfeeling maybe. And listening provides the shared experience that we all crave. It helps us feel that we're not alone that many walk with us, making our burden lighter with each step. So, ultimately, I realized I found my purpose, right, that I was called to listen and to share, and I found a lot of meaning in my work, even though it was unpaid and emotionally fraught, and certainly not part of any sort of real career trajectory. Um, And I know I'm not taking the place of social workers and therapists and educators and professionals and other angels amongst us who do this as a real job. Um, but to be fair, I considered what I was doing very different from therapy. And I think that's that was kind of the point of it. Um, I didn't give any advice, and my aim was not to make better or heal. There's no hierarchy between doctor and patient. I was just a friend, uh, a judgment-free ear, a stranger willing to give of her time. Um, and the shared stories allow people who read them, the audience, um, entry into a lived experience with permission. And this enables us all to understand each other better and to be more transparent and more empathetic and more human. I've heard from people and stories from all different walks of life. Um, At this point, it's well over a thousand. Um, and their confessions are in equal parts powerful and devastating and instructive. Um, And I hope that by sharing our stories, we can all create a space where dialogue is encouraged and where we strive to approach each conversation from a place of wanting to understand each other better and where stories and narratives aren't stifled for years, where realities aren't questioned, where someone's life is honored and respected and understood where we approach everybody from a place of assuming the best. By demanding and expecting that radical honesty about our own stories and demanding and expecting that we're heard, we can move away from where I was when I was starting this journey, right? This self imposed prison of silence and shame. Um, And we can move away from feeling that we're alone because grief and misfortune, at one point or another, will find us all. And it's important to hold space for someone else in their time of need and to honor their life and their story. So the day after my birthday, September 2014, I walked into my office and I quit my job. (laughs) And it was nothing like what you see in the movies, I did not walk out feeling empowered and ready to go. I was petrified um, because I had just left behind everything that I had worked very, very hard to achieve, to chase something that was this nebulous idea. And I don't often tell people this because it doesn't feel like the right thing to do in retrospect. But I didn't tell my parents that I quit my job. Um, and I, They were under the impression that I was working at Lewis Burke Associates in Washington, D.C. for a year after I'd already quit. Uh, and I was listening to stories, meeting, meeting people in coffee shops. And they're, How was your day? Oh, it was good, it was really good. Big Busy, really busy. Yeah. I think a big part of that was that I I didn't have a plan. So if I had told them, this is what I'm doing, and this is my plan, maybe they might have understood. But to say, this is what I'm doing, and I'm doing it because it feels good, and it's a salve for my soul in this moment, and just that, they would have had questions that I didn't have the answers to. I didn't have a plan. I didn't have a blueprint for financial solvency past maybe like three months. Uh, I had some meager savings and a credit card and an idea that I thought might change the world. And so I put my student loans on deferral and I uh, got another credit card. And (laughs) when I told people what I had done, everybody kind of was confused. Um, You did what? Followed by maybe some blank stares or maybe a couple of polite questions trying to understand. Uh, But most people didn't get it and they didn't understand why I would take the risk. And each guffaw was, to me, a minor crisis because when I saw the doubt in their eyes, it only confirmed the doubt in my own mind. I feared their judgment and ridicule because nobody I knew, I mean, no immigrant, period. Like, if you tell any immigrant person this story, they will pass out, but... (laughs) But even, even not so, right? It's just a matter of like, this is not a smart idea, Helena, right? And so I kept questioning, like am I making this giant irreversible mistake? And I felt like everybody that eventually did know about what I was doing was kind of waiting with bated breath for me to fail or come to my senses and get a real job and all that. And I think that was in large part because my idea of success, as a person not job success but success as a human being depended on others and others opinions of me and their designs for me i'd gone to law school because i was you know because my parents said law school med school engineering maybe architect and so i picked the one that i thought fit me best right law school and i you know gone into lobbying because of the gravitas that came along with it. And I thought that I could make a difference there. I found I couldn't. Um, And I was just blindly following a path that was set for me. And hmm, defining my own success, right? What does it mean for me to feel happy and successful, uh, was the hardest thing that I've ever done. And I'm not anywhere close to being done. So um, I've wanted to quit this road many many times but the only thing that kind of keeps me going is this knowledge deep and unshakable from somewhere in the middle here (laughs) that what I'm doing is good and that that's reward enough in and of itself and that it's an investment not only in myself in my emotional depth and intelligence and my complex understanding of the world around me and the people around me but also in leaving the world a better place than I found it uh, by giving everybody a chance to tell their story. To me, there's no pursuit nobler. Um, So Craigslist Confessional, the book, the project, the stories, is about using the lessons of one lonely person to help other lonely people. It's about, I mean, we're all lonely, guys. It's not just me. It's about bridging the divides that can seem almost insurmountable over a cup of coffee. And it all started with one conversation on the street with a homeless person. So in the years that have passed since that conversation with Joe, I think about him all the time. Uh, And I wonder whatever happened to him because after I quit my job, I didn't see him um, every day like I used to. And I've desperately wanted to track him down and tell him what came of our conversation uh, and what an inspiration he was to me. And in January of 2017, I was reading the Washington Post at home in New York when an article caught my eye, and the title was Joseph Watkins, D.C.'s Big-Hearted Cigarette Man, Died on a Park Bench. I um, took in the details of the story, hoping that the article wasn't referring to my Joe, Um, but with every detail that matched my own experience and what I knew of him, my heart sank. Um, It sounded like Joe had been one of that winter's homeless casualties, but I wanted to know for sure, so I wrote the reporter and I asked if she had a photo of him. And she corroborated some details, but she didn't have any photos. So I was left in this unhappy limbo, my heart telling me that I'd never have a chance to thank Joe and for listening to me when I most needed. It made all of the difference. So almost ten years have gone by since I felt that acute feeling of unhappiness and not belonging of needing more. And life has a way of distracting you. (laughs) Sometimes you seek out distraction. Uh, We seek something that takes our mind away from what's hard, from looking inward, from focusing for too long on the ugly and the painful and the rough edges. And I think that's part of the ebb and flow of being human. And sometimes focusing too deeply on the dark, Parts of life, and there are many, can feel like trying to breathe underwater. I've gone back to a lot of lessons that I learned during my time as a listener, and I've dug into the well a lot, especially during COVID. Um, My husband is an ER doctor, uh, so the COVID days were especially dark because we seemed to have a front row seat to all the bad things that could happen. And were happening to people. And we felt raw and exposed. Alex and I, my husband Alex and I, decided that we had to live apart for the first several weeks of the pandemic. Because as a uh, frontline worker, he didn't have PPE, protective equipment. He wasn't wearing masks. He was just going in, hoping for the best. And we were trying to prioritize keeping our then almost two-year-old safe. So... Because we were so privy, too privy, to all that could go wrong, we became very shy of living. Uh, We didn't see my parents in person uh, who lived close by in Connecticut, as I told you, for a whole year. And my father, who's frail from heart disease, was a big point of concern for me. um, Because if he were to catch COVID, he would surely die. And we all agreed. So we stayed away. A year and then a few extra months for good measure. We spoke every day, of course, and um, I had an Amazon Alexa installed in his kitchen in the little corner there. And several times a day, uh, the good thing about Alexa is you can do drop-ins. It's, it's not a call; somebody doesn't have to come up to it to say "Yes, I accept." You can just do it yourself. So I'd just drop in, and I'd call his name, Dad, and say, from wherever he was in the house. He'd say, "I'm coming," and then he'd amble over to the kitchen. Um, I started noticing even before COVID began that my dad's memory wasn't what it had once been. Uh, he was slowly kind of being erased around the edges a little bit and I was fighting to keep him here. And when the world opened up a little bit, we went to celebrate my father's birthday with him in Connecticut. He turned uh, 74 and we were cautious and masked and afraid as ever that letting our guards down would have consequences, that his heart would fail or he'd get sick with COVID or that, I don't know, something would happen. I was constantly kind of scanning the horizon for bad things that could befall to our family, mostly to him. And then suddenly he was sleeping a lot. And suddenly his voice changed. And we took him in to get an ultrasound of his throat. that's what the doctor said to do and there it was metastatic cancer he died three weeks later and i didn't see it coming the thing about something like that happening at the end of covid When you've just spent a year away from your loved ones trying to keep them safe, is that you feel incredibly robbed and incredibly angry. And I've spent, it's been two years now actually, it was two years, April 19th. I spent the last two years since his passing thinking a lot about what makes life worth living, what makes it meaningful, what makes it extraordinary what made my father's life remarkable was it to him and what made the lives of all the people who shared their stories with me remarkable i don't know i am still figuring it out but i'm starting at the beginning again i'm starting with a conversation kind of like the one that i had with joe with someone who's led an extraordinary life. I cried when I wrote this, and I don't want to cry when I read it, but if my father was alive, he would have been my first conversation. And I realized too late that although we talked all the time, we never talked enough. And in lieu of that conversation, I instead chose a friend, a New York City paramedic who is an absolutely remarkable human being, to tell me about his life. This paramedic in question was working all through COVID, and he said that that was the most trying thing he's ever done in his life, but he's done a lot of trying things. He has begun a nonprofit, and him and a bunch of rogue New York City-based paramedics go to areas of the world that are in need of humanitarian assistance, and they offer it for free. So they just helicopter over to Pakistan when they had their terrible earthquake in 2005. And he spent two weeks getting shot at, climbing mountains, trying to help people with crush injuries after that earthquake. He truly is an amazing person. And because I'm eager, greedy, to know more, I asked him to introduce me to his most extraordinary friend and so on and so forth. Interconnected conversations between people about their lives and what makes them worth living. I have spoken to the first man, to Sherpa, a blind person of Mount Everest. I spoke to uh, a Navy SEAL who was, although he won't tell me, um, very involved in capturing some of the men. I've spoken to a cancer survivor and an astronaut who was actually in the ISS when we were introduced and I had to wait for him to come back and recondition before we could have our conversation. A professional NBA player, an MMA fighter, and a lot of everyday people who have led amazing, remarkable lives. All connected, somehow, to the other, like six degrees of separation. Ultimately, listening has taught me one thing. might not look like it, but we're all connected somehow. We're similar in more ways than not. So, as I wrap up, my talk here. If I had to say any one thing that I've learned as a listener is to be thankful and grateful while you have a chance and cherish the people around you. And when you don't know what else to do, just listen. Thank you, everybody.